0: So today we're going to hear from Sean um, regarding um, up, an update on Children's Education and Care Assurance. We have the Narragunna Wally Senior Officer coming from Reconciliation Australia to present uh, and introduce uh, some of the work that can be done there on meaningful reconciliation initiatives in education and care settings and within the community. Uh, Gori Sharma, who is a PhD student at Canberra University, will show her doctoral research project highlighting the relationships between intentional teaching strategies and children's executive function skills. So that should be very interesting. We'll have a break for morning tea for about, um, and after that we will hear from Kerry Campbell, who is the Deputy National Education Leader at ACWA. And he will share some of the SEQWAS self assessment and continuous improvement resources and how they can assist services in self assessment against the National Quality Standard and the Educational and Care National Law and Regulations. Our last presentation for the day will be delivered by Rowena Muir, who is the Director and Pedagogical Leader at Manica Childcare Centre, and Rowena will share Mocha's approach to high quality professional learning and how this relates to their plan for continuous improvement. So in those last couple of sessions, a very strong focus on continuous improvement and I know that that is something in front of mind for everyone. Now I'd like to hand over now to Sean, who will uh, do our acknowledgement and give an update. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Wendy, and I'm I'm honoured today to Give the acknowledgement of country um, in Anangu language, Yangu Ingada Dindi, and that translates as This is Anangu country. Today we are gathering on Anangu country. We always pay respect to elders, female and male. Um, I hope I'm getting this. Right, and there's a lovely picture of just out past Western Creek there in Corningham Country. Um, colleagues, I'm going to talk about um, today um, just some of the national updates mainly, but some of the local updates as well. Um, let me just get uh, the... get this So, just for the national consultation... Um, thank you colleagues for um, being part of that, the National Quality Framework Review, which is now in its um, final stages. Um, As you can see from this slide, that's kind of the two years we're at. We did lose time in 2020. But earlier this year, some of you or a lot of you would have participated in the survey, but also participated in a face-to-face event we had here and also an online event. And we also had a special online event around multi storey buildings, which particularly affects um, ACT um, and Victoria. So all of that that material is being compiled by a and that feedback is being used for analysis now, and that will inform Minister's deliberations later this year. So we expect there will be a decision Regulation Impact Statement later this year. If you want to refresh your, your memories and minds about um, what that looked like, please go to the National Quality Framework Review website which has got all of the material. Um, I think probably our next update on that will be um, how the detail of this plays out and what feedback um, from, from that consultation will be provided publicly. Um, the other big national consultation that's going on a national piece of work is the National Workforce Strategy. Um, that's being led by CEQA on behalf of all governments around um, the country. Um, the CEQA's been doing some fantastic work putting that together. You can see from this slide uh, the, the key processes that are, that, that are underway. Again, we lost a, lost a bit of time last year for this one, but I think it's catching up. Um, the consultation of this closed on the 31st of May. Um, and again, that's another big piece of work to inform all governments and ministers about what decisions um, can be made or should be made, and that'll be considered by the education ministers in the last half of this year. And again, if you want to look up that strategy, please have a look at the ESEQUA website. I think you can get links um, to the workforce strategy through the ESEQUA website. Um, As if there wasn't enough consultation and pieces of work going on, it's also approved learning frameworks are being reviewed as well. So that, that process is starting. Uh, I think Wendy is our, is our, um, our territory representative on that um, important piece of work. Um, a has organised a national consortium uh, to work on that, uh, that, those updates. Uh, that's a partnership between Macquarie University, Queensland University of Technology and Edith Cowell University. And again, that's on behalf of all governments. It's something that um, we're all very interested in seeing how we're going. So that's, that's the review of uh, Belonging Being Coming, the Early Years Learning Framework for Australia, and My Time, Our Place, Framework for School Aged Care in Australia. Um, as surprisingly, they're, they're, all, they're about a decade old now, so it's time for a bit of an update. Um, but um, that'll be um, some interesting work to, to look at that. Um, there'll also be opportunities for more feedback from the sector, and we'll keep you updated through that. Um, check out Kylie's Facebook stuff. Um, you'll get a lot of updates and, and connections through through that material. Um, and of course, one of the happiest things I, you know, I certainly love reporting on is the progress of um, set up for a success, the early childhood strategy for the ACT, um, and this is um, very. When I, when I get a bit, look at this graph, it comes in every month or two, it does. It makes me happy. So this is the progress of the three-year-old three initiative under the Early um, Childhood Strategy set up for success. And as you can see, the growth in take-up of, of places the provision of places is growing, and it's, it's a very, it's a lovely curve there. So I think as of April 30, um, 200 children are now part of the three-year-old initiative. So. Um, for those who... Can, I'm not sure if you can see the, the bars there, but basically the, um, the purple number is the number of children who are placed, the yellow bar is the number of children who commenced, and the orange bar is the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who have commenced. So uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, Koori Pre is available, um, uh, both for 3 year old and four-year-olds. So um, that's, it, it, it's going well. And I think, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we had the analogy of the river filling up and the, the river's simply filling up. So I encourage everybody to um, to find out more about it um, and uh, if your organisation would like to be involved, please, please get in contact with us or visit the Early Childhood Strategy um, website. The other thing that's going on uh, is some of you uh, who would have been, uh, who are involved in the three-year-old initiative would have been offered free, uh, free places for um, trauma-informed um, training uh, and practice. Um, those places are, are, are filling up as the three-year-old program rolls out, and I encourage that if you are part of the three-year-old program and you are not accessing that trauma-informed training, please do. But as part of our arrangement with the Australian Childhood Foundation, um, we're investing in the delivery of trauma-informed training for all of the sector and uh, you may recently have noticed that um, that training is now um, available for everybody in the sector at $33 um, per registration so it is a, it is an affordable um, uh, program and I, I do have to say um, I've gone through it and many colleagues in, in the regulatory have already gone, gone through it. It's very modern it brings a lot of stuff that you may have had um, engagement with in different disciplines. Um, It really is, it's it's a great piece of work, so I really encourage people to participate in that. Um, And the sort of things it deals with, the evidence about about trauma and its its impact on child development, the principles of trauma responsive practice, creative and practical strategies, um, that support the recovery of children and young people from trauma, and ways to collaborate with others um, to maximise the impact um, for the support we provide to children in those circumstances. Now, as part of that training and as part of the whole package that we've um, we partnered with uh, the ACF is to deliver um, trauma-responsive professional support networks, so a committee of practice kind of model. Um, that started, we already have our, uh, our champions. And we've got a really good response of champions around the Territory, and the idea is we make it as... Um, uh, a, a effective and, and practical and um, uh, supportive as possible. So those champions will be establishing these networks and the ideas that everyone can connect together to work on um, experiences. As you depreciate in a small jurisdictions, it's very, it's very difficult to envisage um, everybody um, uh, working with children with all of the expressions of how trauma comes about and how, how, how it manifests itself. But together we can share our experiences and actually work with children um, and learn from each other's experiences and learn from the experiences that children have gone through as well. So that information is in the the packs uh, on your tables. Um, Please do take that up. It's an opportunity to engage in, in my opinion, really high quality training, high quality content, really modern content. For um, a, a very affordable price, and if you are part of the three-year-old program, please take up the the free places for training and get, get, get behind the um, the professional uh, support networks. Okay, that's my that's my rave of the the things that uh, I had. Any any questions or um, things people want to mention? Sean, could you just
0: um clarify with a three-year-old programme is that open so we're from an outside school arts centre. We are we do open to three-year-olds so we're we'll approved for that. Are we therefore eligible the to be part of that program or is it just for daycare?
1: It, it's it's really for longer hours. It's it's really a um, a model of uh, at the moment it's seven and a half hours over two days um, and it's it's it has always going to expand to 48 weeks as well. So at the moment it's 40 weeks, it'll expand to 48 weeks. I'm looking at Roe I think she participating, got some idea what, what I'm supposed to be talking about. Um, yeah, so, but um, if you want to set up a centre-based service and yeah, absolutely, yeah, it will be, be fantastic. Okay, well look, I'll hand, I'll hand back to Wendy. Um, thank you colleagues and it's great to see everybody today um, in person as well.
0: Lovely. Thank you Sean. I would encourage everyone to take up that offer of uh, undertaking the Australian Children's Foundation's Trauma Informed um, Practice option of training at $33 a person. That is pretty reasonable. And I think everyone here would um, understand the importance of that uh, training in today's world. Um, So, yeah. I strongly encourage you to have a, a look at that and check it out in your box and get involved with that. We're now moving on to a presentation from the Wally, uh group. Now I don't think Esma is here. No? No,
2: my name's Julie.
0: We've got Julie to, to do this presentation. Um, very wonderful website so I'm hoping that you'll all be encouraged to participate and uh, have a look at it. Thanks. George.
2: Thank you Wendy. Hello everyone. Thank you Sean for that beautiful um, acknowledgement of country in Ngunnawal language. How special that you've been uh, given permission to do that. Um, Before I start I'd also like to acknowledge country. I'd like to acknowledge that we're here on Ngunnawal country. Um, And I'd like to pay my respects to elders of this country who have cared for this country since the beginning of time. Um, Elders past, elders of today and elders of the future. And I'd also like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are in the room today. Um, And I'd just quickly like to reflect on um, country this morning, so uh, one of the ways in which I as a non-Indigenous person Um, acknowledge country is to spend time on country here in Canberra um, and notice uh, the beautiful place that we live and try and connect with that in ways that are important to me. So I did that yesterday and went up to um, spend some time out um, in the hills near Casey and found some gorgeous old granddaddy trees or grandmommy trees, I'm not really sure. Um, But yeah, that was a lovely way to connect with country for me and driving through the fog this morning as well. so I encourage you to reflect on how you connect with this beautiful place that we are able to live. So my name is Julie Boba. <coughs> I work for uh, Reconciliation Australia's National team. Um, I'm a teacher and I've spent many hours in this room learning just as, um, just as we are today. And I'm here today to talk to you a bit about um, the programme Narragona Wally. Can you just give me a bit of an idea of who knows about Narragana Wally or about reconciliation action plans? Most of you, put your hand up if you have a wrap at your school of service or organisation. Awesome. Okay. So I won't go into too much detail about um, about what it is that we do, but for those of you who don't know, um, Narraganawali is a word from the Ngunnawal people, so our main office is based here in Canberra, so the word Narraganawali actually means alive, well-being, coming together and peace, and that word was gifted to us from the United Ngunnawal Elders Council, and we're very proud to be able to use that that word. So just quickly, and I'm speaking to people who are very aware of what reconciliation is, and we've just had National Reconciliation Week, so... um, I'm sure you're all very kind of up to date with what reconciliation is, but I just wanted to let uh, to show you this uh, comic from the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, which was commissioned in 1997, um, and it kind of gives us a bit of an overview of some of the different ways in which people think about reconciliation. So, reconciliation is often a word that's kind of thought as thought about as maybe not the right word to use because it implies that there was an initial conciliation or togetherness between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other Australians. But if we take a look at Australia's true history, um, we see and understand that that's not true. So lots of people are like, reconciliation? Is that really the right right word to talk about um, what we're doing when we're trying to unite Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other Australians? Um, So I'm not sure if you can see, and I actually, in fact, can't see either, But I do know that on there, there are things like reconciliation. If I knew it would work, then I'd give it a go. Or um, reconciliation is something that white people need to do. Um, Or reconciliation, yeah, it's important that we are together as Australians. So there's lots of different views. And I just wanted to kind of highlight that um, reconciliation is something that is um, a challenge for Australians because of the history of our country Um, and therefore the word is also a challenge. So we're just going to quickly put colonial history into perspective, just to kind of settle ourselves into what we're talking about. So if you have a look at this graph, you'll see that um, recently in Victoria, actually a couple of years ago now in Victoria, there were some um, artefacts that were dated to 120,000 years ago. Um, and that doesn't just mean that people were here in Victoria 120,000 years ago. These artefacts are actual proof of our uh, culture, cultural practices. So uh, people who were, um, who were here speaking languages, uh, practicing cultures, um, were here at least 120,000 years ago in Victoria. So if you think about... Um, and if you talk to Aboriginal people and have close relationships with them, Um, you'll come to understand, and hopefully some of you do have these relationships, that Aboriginal people um, have been here, uh, will say that they have been here since the beginning of time. That's probably a hard concept for um, some non-Indigenous people to understand, but um, I just want to show you... So, science says 120,000 years, and I don't know if you can see that tiny little bar there. It's tiny, it's red. Um, that's how long we have, um, ha- we have lived in Australia as Australians since co- colonisation. So you can see that culture has been practised for a very long time and um, those people who have come to Australia since uh, colonisation or have lived here because of colonisation um, have a lot to learn from the people who have been here for a very, very long time and have deep connections with this, with this place. Um, so, I would normally show a film now, but I don't really have as much time as I normally would. So, um, but I will just quickly talk about reconcilia- reconciliation in education. So, we, um, we as teachers and educators have actually been, kind of been robbed um, in the education system so far, because I know for myself, I felt when I first started learning about this concept, I felt quite uncomfortable because I was like, well, I didn't get to learn about this at school. Put your hand up if you feel like you got a really comprehensive education about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and perspectives in your, in your teaching, uh, in your learning, sorry, as a younger person, as, a, as an undergraduate person at university or as a master's degree or PhD person. Does anyone feel like they've got a good education? I don't see a single hand. So, nor do I. And we've kind of been robbed because we've been left out of this um, amazingly rich and diverse world that places us in the place that we live and learn. And so what we have to do now as educators, and I'm also a teacher, I'm an early childhood and primary teacher. um, What we need to do (laughs) now is we need to think about how we learn, unlearn and relearn. So not only did we not get a very good um, a very comprehensive education, but we also have been taught by a system that um, preferences colonial perspectives. We've, taught, we've been taught by that system some things that are actually not true. So what we need to do now is we need to do a little bit of unlearning and we need to do a bit of relearning. So, um, and that's our job as teachers and that's you know, part of um, what Perry is here to you know. Perry's work does and um, actually Mocker as well. You've got some beautiful, uh, lovely speakers today and you will, um, yeah, you'll learn a lot. So we do need <laughs> to be unlearning and relearning. And so that's what the film that I, I encourage you to go on to the Narragun um, Lawley platform and have a look at some of the films because that will support your kind of understanding. Okay, what is reconciliation built on? So there are five dimensions of reconciliation. One is race relations. So that's the relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other Australians. One is equality and equity, and we've all seen that um, comic of kind of a kid, a couple of kids at a fence. On one has a higher box, one has no box, one has kind of a medium box, and they're all trying to reach over the fence. So equality is about giving um, everybody the same, and equity is about giving everybody what they need. And we all know this. I'm talking to professionals and you know the difference between that, but it's important to reconciliation because some of us are, um, some of us are born with a, you know, a, for, a more forward starting point than others, um, and when you think about racism in Australia, um, we need to consider that different people have different needs and different students have different needs, as we all know. Um, unity, so that's about a coming together and a kind of being together as Australians. Institutional integrity is another dimension, so this one's super important for the work that we do in the institutions that we work within um, because they have historically um, preferenced um, colonial or Western ways of knowing and thinking and being. And we, especially in the early childhood sector, have such an important and powerful role to play because we're less bound by those structures, so we don't have to do as much traditional classroom teaching, we have more opportunities to do play-based kind of teaching and learning and set-up experiences um, and have those more relational learning experiences. So we're pretty lucky in the early childhood sector because we have more room to wriggle, I guess. Um, And then historical acceptance is another dimension of reconciliation. This one is all about... um, Recognising, understanding um, and talking about Australia's true history and that can be pretty tricky for us, Um, people of our kind of vintage, I guess, um, because we weren't taught um, Australia's true history. So we have to do some of that learning on our own, which is a huge responsibility, but it's really important. I'm not going to talk about this, this is just the work that we do at Narragona Wally. Um, So the Narragunawalee program is based upon um, some kind of underpinning ideas and of course that's um, got to do with the Australian Professional Standards for Teachers. We all know um, a lot about these um, standards and there are two focus areas that are important to reconciliation. They're all important to reconciliation but these are the two most important. 1.4 and 2.4. So 1.4 is about um, teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and 2.4 is about teaching about reconciliation. So those two things are different. Teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students um, is about pedagogies and strategies for teaching those students who are in your classrooms or in your care settings. Um, And then teaching about reconciliation is for all students. So every Australian student has the right to learn about and know about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, peoples and um, perspectives. And so this is how the Australian Professional Standards for Teachers tells us that we need to do that. So this is our job and we know that. Um, The Australian Curriculum, there's the cross-curriculum priority. So um, these perspectives need to be brought in, as you know, across all um, learning areas. The National Quality Standards, so Quality Area 6, is about um, collaborative partnerships with families and communities. And the best um, practice in reconciliation always involves partnerships with your community. So you don't do this stuff by yourself. We, um, you know, most of the teaching workforce um, is uh, non-Indigenous people um, and put that piece of information together with the fact that we don't have the kind of education that we need to do this well. We need to partner with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our community to support us. Um, to do this and to allow students to have access to those perspectives. Um, So that's why the uh, collaborative partnerships is such an important one. And um, as Sean was talking about, the early learning framework and the My Time Our Place um, frameworks, the principles that's important to reconciliation is number four, respect for diversity. Um, And you all know that very well, so I won't talk too much about that. So they're the external frameworks which inform the Narragun program and platform. Before I go any further, I'll just tell you that um, those of you who have a WRAP will kind of know what I'm talking about. But for those who don't, a WRAP is a Reconciliation Action Plan. So a WRAP um, is something that can be created on the Narragona Wally platform um, and the purpose of a WRAP is essentially to develop a plan at your school of service that supports you to work towards reconciliation. It's kind of like, um, we have plans for many things in schools and we all know why we have them because otherwise there's a passionate person that starts running with something and then they leave or then, you know, they get distracted by something else or and, and things fall over. So we need plans in place to make sure that this kind of work is continuous and it's not done by an individual. So that's what a reconciliation action plan is about. And, what we have on the platform is a series of actions. So they're things like build relationships with community, teach about reconciliation, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the classroom, cultural competence with staff, um, and there are 40 of those actions. And each of those actions has a, has a series of professional learning resources and curriculum resources for you to access to kind of work towards those actions. So a Reconciliation Action Plan is a collection of actions that you're committed to to work towards reconciliation and there's resources to support you. Just um, wanted to say that for those of you who don't know what a RAP is. So a RAP and the Narragona Narragona Wally platform is based on those external frameworks that we just talked about. But the internal framework um, is this. So it's about relationships, respect, and opportunities, and the idea is that respectful relationships create meaningful opportunities. So we also think about it in terms of in the, what happens in the classroom, what happens around the school, and what happens with the community. And so you can see that matrix there is kind of the internal framework for our thinking. And then what um, you'll see now is some of the actions that are going to pop up. So Aboriginal Trishaw flags. For example, is one of the actions that you can work towards as a school of service. And obviously that's showing respect with the community. Then you have build relationships with community. That's another action that I mentioned. So um, that is building relationships with the community. Um, And you can see that all of the actions, there are 40 altogether, fit somewhere in that matrix. So, we also have an awards program, which I won't talk too much about because we don't really have time. But there are four um, steps to creating a rap. Put your hand up if you've got a published rap in your school or service. <coughs> awesome. I know, I know Maka um, does for sure because I remember going out there and just seeing that amazing space and talking with them. It was wonderful. So there are four steps. Um, one is develop a rap working group. And the purpose of that is that you can't do reconciliation alone, you need a group of people who are working on it together. So the first thing to do is, is create a RAP working group. Whoops, How do I go back? Can I go back? Yeah. <coughs> the second thing to do is to um, do a reflection survey. And we, you know, reflective practice is clearly what we do as teachers and educators. Um, we're always reflecting on what we're doing with the kids, what we're doing in our practice. Um, and this reflection survey just supports you to know where you are as a school or service in terms of reconciliation. So I'll ask questions like, how many teachers and educators know what country you're on? How many teachers and, edu- teachers and educators feel comfortable teaching about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives in the classroom? So there's a whole series of questions that kind of help you as a RAP working group and as a collective um, to understand where you're at and then after a year, you have an opportunity to do that reflection survey again and see how far along you've come. Um, there's also a vision and an acknowledgement of country that are involved. So your vision is an aspirational statement for reconciliation in your service. Um, and finally, the actions that I was just talking about and that I was just showing you that matrix, um, those actions, there are 40 altogether, but there are 14 that we at narragun I believe are minimally required to be of working respectfully towards reconciliation so you need to choose those 14 actions to be able to have a public wrap. how am i going for time good okay no worries just, um we usually talk for like an hour, an hour and a half i'm like okay okay not talk too much what i will do now because i have been talking a lot is Um, I'm going to ask you to, we're going to do a little bit of an activity, a bit of a head-heart-hands activity and I'm pretty sure you all know exactly what that is. So about reconciliation I'd like you to write or think of one sentence um, about what you, so we're going to do head first and hands together, so what you, sorry, head and heart together, so what you think about reconciliation and how you feel about reconciliation. If you could just take one minute to reflect upon those two things. What you think about, already think about reconciliation and how you feel about reconciliation. I'll give you one minute. Uh, Does anyone, would anyone love to share? One person? Anyone brave enough? Yes! Yeah! (laughs) Um, So I think um, with reconciliation it's about us all understanding that we need to do more and especially in early childhood we've got a big responsibility Mm -hmm. to do more. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the word that you just used was Something that resonates with me in the Reconciliation Week is bravery. So it's bravery to share, ask questions, build new connections. Yeah, so it's all about the relationships. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, it is important – it is a very important word. And for those of you who have been engaging with NRW, um, 20 – 21 is all about um, moving from safe to brave in reconciliation. So, uh, yeah, the State of Reconciliation in Australia report um, is kind of talking a lot about moving from safe to brave. So trying to... If you go onto the Reconciliation Australia website, there's a whole heap of actions that you can take to move your thinking and your action around reconciliation from kind of those safer things that we do to more brave action. And it's kind of about you know, bravery in terms of tackling racism, um, and the things that you can do as an individual, both as a personal, you know, in your personal world, as well as in your professional world. So, yeah, I encourage you, thank you. I encourage you all to go onto the RA website and have a bit of a look there as well. Um, okay, so this is just an example of some of the actions. I'm not gonna talk too much about these at the moment, because we don't have much time left but um, I just want to show you what it looks like on the platform. So this is an action, so this is one of the actions you can commit to, and it's called uh, build relationships with community. I choose this one because I think this is the most important one um, when you're working towards reconciliation. So um, can I take this? Is that okay? Sorry. Okay, so if you have a look over here, it gives you a brief overview of what this action is um, and then a more detailed overview. In the need to know section, it gives you information on kind of protocols or really important things that you need to know. There's a lot of fear around teaching about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives um, and that's fair. but this need to know section kind of gives you that information you need to know so you don't need to be fearful about. Um, the actions that you're taking or the ways that you're thinking about it. The ideas for action are very specific. So in this one, for example, it will give you um, people and organisations to reach out to. Um, It'll give you examples of kind of ways that you can go out into community to learn more about your local community. Um, So there's some ideas for action. And then each of the actions has a a series of professional (coughs) learning and curriculum resources. So the professional learning are all linked to the um, professional standards for teachers and you can do them as self-identified um, professional learning. And if you're a new Wales teacher you can when they're so accredited as well. And then curriculum resources um, are all linked to the early learning framework and the Australian curriculum. So um, they kind of set sorry they kind of set up like lesson plans. Um, I'll see if I've got an example. Oh, it's going through. i just showing me. Okay. So this is an example of the professional learning resources. So there are things like, um, you know, curriculum audits, evaluating resources guides, uh, a whole heap of links to external, you know, uh, places, organisations, information, and curriculum resources as well. So I don't think I have... Um, an example to show you what the curriculum resources look like, but it pretty much is set up like a lesson plan. It's like um, curriculum links, uh, activity, um, learning outcomes, uh, assessment attachments kind of thing. We also have a series of subject guides. So these are really helpful for primary and secondary teachers, but they're also helpful for early childhood as well. Um, And what these give you is, a very detailed kind of overview of the historical perspective of each of these subjects in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures and histories, um, and then it gives you a whole heap of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have contributed to these fields um, and links to their works, their texts, their you know music, their art, um, and then anything reconciliation related to do with those learning areas. So the English one gives you a whole heap of texts that you can use in the classroom that you should have in your libraries in your services, etc., um, etc. Et so they're really useful. This is what a RAP looks like once it's, um, once it's published and complete. So it has your vision, it has your acknowledgement, um, it shows your actions, the members of your RAP working group. Um, and the goals and deliverables. You can also set goals and deliverables. And then that's the poster that you can put up around your service. There's also a who has a wrap map. So if you are a a school or organisation or service who doesn't yet have a wrap and really want to work with somebody or ask some questions, you can access this network here with each other. Those people put up their hands, you can go and talk to them. I can see some smiling faces who I think would be happy to be approached about talking about their rat. Um, and, or you can go onto this Who Has A Rat Map and kind of click on people that are close to you geographically. Um, it's also really important if you're working with Aboriginal community, Ngunnawal um, people or Nabri people here, or Wiradjuri people here in Canberra, it's really important to kind of not overburden those individuals who have got a lot of schools and services asking them for help and if you can work together in, with people who are close with you geographically um, then you will be able to kind of lessen that burden because you can have someone come out and do something for your school or service and you can have um, yeah a collective kind of group of you experiencing that rather than, and it's cheaper as well if you work in that way. Um, OK, so here are some further resources. We're nearly we're out of time for our chat today, um, but here are some further resources for you if you'd like to go away and learn more. We have a series of webinars which kind of unpack some of the actions and we work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to produce these webinars and they're all on the platform. We also have a quarterly newsletter, so you can access that on the platform as well. Um, and the Narragunnawalee Awards 2021 have actually closed for nominations and applications but there will be a ceremony, um, an award ceremony in November. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can go on the platform and have a look. NRW, you've all seen this poster. Um, so reflecting on what the lovely, what was your name? Joanne. Joanne um, kind of mentioned. Uh, let's, let's finish up this chat with um, next steps. So how do you move from safe to brave? in terms of reconciliation. So what does safe to brave mean to you? Just have a little think about that. And what is one action that you can take in your personal or professional life to demonstrate moving from safe to brave? So if you can have a quick think about that. I'll leave that slide up there, just one minute for you to maybe just write down a word or something, your next most powerful step, what can you do? anyone want to share their word or their next most powerful action? Yes, over there. Um, So we are working on our second RAP Mm -hmm. that we will launch hopefully in the next um, four months or so. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about maybe introducing more of the local Ngunnawal language into our daily education program, Mm -hmm. so working with um, local um, community members on that and also looking at some of our procurement processes in the service so not just really partnering with local businesses in terms of the education staff but also looking at it for all our other kind of running costs. Fabulous, yeah. that's great, thank you, thank you for sharing that. Just in terms of procurement, um, get in touch with Supply Nation if you haven't already. Cool, Um, thank you very much for sharing your time with me this morning and uh, thank you for inviting me and um, I will leave these useful links. If you want to get in touch with uh, me personally or any of us at Narragona just go onto the website, there's um, there's an email address there that we all have access to and feel free to use my name, my name's Julie, if you want to talk with me. I work here, I live here, so happy to meet or reach out or yeah, I'm here for you guys if you need help. Thank you.
0: Thank you Julie. Can I just say how heartwarming it was to see so many hands go up um, when we asked that question at at the start of Julie's session. Um, I'm endlessly proud of the education and care sector and the extent to which we have engaged with the question of reconciliation and with the Narragone, Narragone Wadi website in particular, we see this as authorised officers going out, doing assessment and rating. But I do also see the flatlining that has gone on and that I think is because we're working in that safe zone and it could be that we can be a tad braver in what we try to do. So it could be that a rap for some services would be a wonderful way of doing that because then you commit it to paper and you put it front of mind and you actually have dedicated actions. So um, I think that that could be a a good next step for for some people. But well done on the level of engagement that we've had in this space in the ACT and um, I think we should all be happy I don't want to say proud because it's something that you should do anyway, but happy with progress. But don't just be safe, be brave. I'd like to now introduce the next speaker, uh, Gori Sharma. She currently is uh, working at Deakin Early Learning Centre as well, which is an interesting piece of information. So it's lovely, Gori, to have you with us today as a, a fellow practitioner as well as a PhD student. Um, if you'd like to come forward, thank you.
3: Um, good morning. I'd like to start by thanking Julie for such an, uh, a talk of such practical relevance to all of us and, of course, to thank um, Kylie and her team for inviting me to share some uh, bits and pieces of my research. Um, I'm not quite sure. Kylie, What do I just go down? Um, I know the only thing that stands between you and that cup of coffee is my presentation, so I'm just going to get right into it. Um, So the topic of my research is supporting the development of executive functioning skills, a study of preschool teachers' practices and their students' executive functioning skills. Um, I might start by actually um, explaining to you what the term executive functioning skills actually um, entails. So it's a group of cognitive processes that lead to goal-directed, purposeful actions. So, and it's in its more developed state, the capacities to problem solve. So, most um, popularly, it's known to comprise three core components, working memory, inhibitory control, and cognitive flexibility. So, working memory is your capacities to store and manage information in your brain in order to complete a task at hand. So, in a young child, um, their capacities to recall rules and routines demonstrates that they're actually exercising their working memory. Inventory control is the ability to control your actions, your thoughts, your behaviors, your attention, in order to complete a predetermined task. So, in a young child, uh, you know, in your preschool classroom, it would be sitting and listening to, or attending to, say, uh, story time. Um, until the task is complete. Uh, And uh, cognitive flexibility is the ability to um, shift your perspective or your thinking based on change demands. Or you can think of it as uh, your capacities to think of things in multiple ways. So when a child is, say, working with a puzzle and they're spinning the puzzle pieces around in order to uh, be able to fit them into the slot, they're actually exercising their cognitive flexibility. So interestingly, early executive functioning skills have been deemed to be the most powerful predictor of life outcomes. And when we speak of life outcomes, we're not just speaking of your income levels or your um, your education, but also conviction rates, addiction rates, your general uh, health and well-being, your capacity to actually maintain long-term relationships. And a study in Dunedin actually followed a cohort of... Um, of 1,000 individuals from birth until the age of 32. And what they found was it was the, the individual's executive functioning skills at the age, at their preschool age, which was the most powerful predictor of their life outcomes at the age of 32. So for us as educators, it's really important for us to actually know that the ages of three and five, between the ages of three and five, have been viewed as uh, an area of concentrated growth of these skills. In the shorter term as well, executive function skills um, have been deemed to be powerful predictors of your academic outcomes. So it's your early executive functioning skills that actually um, support individuals to adjust socially and emotionally to a school environment, to be able to forge relationships with their Um, peers with their teachers, they support comprehension skills, reading skills, mathematics skills. So noting the relevance of early executive function skills, a whole heap of research has been conducted on interventions that can actually build these skills in young children. So you've got interventions based on pretend play, computerized training tasks, a lot of interventions. So for us as educators, The important point to take home from all these interventions is the fact that you can actually build these skills in young children. So the interventions have demonstrated you can build these skills in young children, however, what the research does not tell us is how you can build them in a manner, and this is for us as educators, in a manner that's actually relevant to our pedagogy to our context and to our students. And so, um, so that's the gap in the literature which my um, research is trying to fill. So of course, as a thought of relevant practice, you your mind goes to intentional teaching in early childhood education. And as we all know, intentional teaching is one of the eight core practices underpinning the EYLF. And um, the purpose of intentional teaching is um, to, has been listed as um, developing high level thinking skills in young children. So, noticing the, you know, the centrality of intentional teaching to, um, to quality practice and the fact that it actually targets the development of high level thinking skills, I started wondering whether we could actually or how we could use intentional teaching in order to specifically target the development of executive functioning skills. And lo and behold, in Queensland, I came across three teachers, and I'm actually allowed to use their names, who have been intentionally teaching in order to extend their students' executive functioning skills. So Leanne, Desley, and Sue um, are preschool teachers. They're qualified early childhood educators with with over 30 years of teaching um, uh, experience behind them. They are award-winning teachers. And, of course, their practices are informed by the YLF and the the learning outcomes. And um, and Leanne's curriculum is primarily um, pretend play-oriented. Desi's is also pretend play-oriented, but she um, focuses on building relationships, the children's capacities to um, uh, forge and maintain relationships. And Sue's is very much um, art and music-oriented. So they're... There are differences in their curriculum, Um, however, although there are differences in their curriculum, there are two integral practices that are common to all three teachers. So all three teachers support the development of agency and they offer children multiple opportunities throughout the day to problem solve. So they do have these common practices, however, each teacher actually articulates different um, primary goals for their students so leanne for leanne her primary goal is to develop disposi- learning dispositions in her students so which we all know about you know things like cooperation Just this closer to you sorry so yeah. <laughs> uh, so things like uh, cooperation um, resilience persistence uh, imagination etc Um, Desley, on the other hand, uh, as I said, focuses on building children's capacities to forge relationships, so very much a social-emotional orientation, so targeting targeting those social-emotional skills in children. And Sue, um, her aim is to build, uh, develop children into self-regulated learners, which, in a way, she she does in a similar manner to Leanne. She targets the um, development of learning dispositions in young children. So through this slide, what I'm trying to demonstrate is the fact that all three teachers actually have different, they've articulated different primary goals um, for their students, but they actually believe that the development of executive functioning skills supports their students to achieve these goals. And that's the reason why the teachers actually chose to target the, the development of executive functioning skills in their students. Now, what actually ensured that these teachers' early childhood practices um, and their, or, or rather their executive functioning practices that targeted executive functioning skills and their pedagogy their, um, and uh, context aligned really well was the fact that once these teachers actually gained an understanding of executive function skills, they donned an EF lens, an executive functioning lens. And they began to view their existing practices and their existing activities through an executive functioning skills lens and began to view their students' engagement uh, with these activities through an executive functioning skills lens. So when the teacher's done an EF lens to view their existing practices, they realize that all preschool activities are inherently EF demanding. So your routines, your transitions, your free play, all this, all these activities are actually inherently EF demanding. So instead of adding activities, all the teachers did was incorporate strategies to extend these um, opportunities or rather the EF demands within the existing practi- uh, activities. And when the teachers uh, actually um, began viewing their students uh, executive functioning skills, uh, their students' engagement with activities through an EF lens. This gave them a deep understanding of their students' abilities and their um, EF capacities. This gave them a deep understanding and this deep understanding actually um, resulted or informed their EF enhancing practices So this EF lens that the teachers adopted ensured that their practices aligned really well with their pedagogy, because they didn't need to um, incorporate any new activities. And of course, there was a lot of responsiveness, because it all depended on on their students' executive functioning skills. I'm just going to take a quick detour, just a quick recap on what intentional teaching actually uh, entails. So I I think we all know it's, um, you know, you have You identify or define teaching goals or learning objectives for your students and then you identify as an educator, you identify strategies so so as to help your students achieve these goals. And these strategies are incorporated during teacher and child-led activities. And finally, of course, the continual assessment of um, of these strategies. Um, to ensure the efficacy, and then adjusting them based on the um, on this assessment. So, for the rest of this uh, presentation, I'm just going to t- uh, talk you through the second element of intentional teaching, as far as these teachers were concerned, pertaining to teaching executive functioning skills. So, the strategies that the teachers employed. On this slide, you have the strategies. Um, that the teachers employed during teacher-led activities. So planning for play was one of the uh, strategies, Um, it was implemented just prior to children (coughs) engaging in indoor free play. So at Leanne and Sue's, um, uh, Leanne and Desley's preschools, pretend play was a primary form of play the children engaged with during free play. And at Sue's place, you know, she actually offered a multitude of activities. So all children at all three preschools planned for their pretend of planned for their pretend play activities, and at Sue's also for block play. And planning for play basically entailed children actually deciding the their play themes, identifying the the area that they'll be setting up their play, and then um, identifying the sorts of resources they would require to. Um, Uh, to develop their props for their play. So at the beginning of the year, I noticed the teachers planning for play actually entailed a lot of discussions, whole group discussions, a lot of open-ended questions, a lot of suggestions, and children making lots and lots of choices, a lot of decisions, and a lot of problem solving. But towards the end of the year, the teachers actually asked the children to draw their plans, and, um, and there were a lot of quite detailed, elaborate plans being drawn, um, what the teachers believed was, as the children engaged in the planning process, of course that is inherently EF demanding, but when the children actually engaged in their play, following their, uh, their plans, their, plan, their play became very, uh, a lot more goal-directed, um, resulting in them exercising their executive functioning skills. So the second um, strategy that the teachers incorporated was increasing the complexity of tasks over time. Now, all of us do that uh, in a preschool. We are always uh, increasing the complexity of tasks over time um, by increasing the complexity of the instructions. But these teachers also incorporated child-guided changes to the activities. So... um, so, for example, if you, you, know, you have a music session and you say singing Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes, you ask the children to incorporate changes to these songs. So, you know, you know, someone says you could sing it with your eyes shut or you could sing it backwards or you could muddle the words around. So what's happening when these children are actually uh, suggesting alternative ways of singing the song? They're exercising their cognitive flexibility. And when they're incorporating these changes and... Um, singing the songs in these different ways, they're actually exercising every single element of executive functioning skills. So, um, and then we come to minimizing teacher direction. So this was something the teachers actually implemented during routines where they uh, would, uh, you know, say, for example, packing up. So the teachers would get the children to sit on the mat and, of course, the resources strewn all over the room and they'd ask the children to look around and uh, decide if they can spot any area which needs to be packed up, and, and then they'd go ahead and pack it up. So what the teachers are doing here is getting children to make decisions regarding what needs to be done, using their working memory to re- recall where things were put away, how they were put away, and then problem solving. You know, if something's large, it's too unwieldy, or it's, it's too heavy, how are they going to move it to ensure it gets back to, where, to its original storage spots? Um, and then problem solving to, you know, ensure things get packed away neatly, the, just the way they were. So with the large blocks, they fit in those shelves or in the containers correctly. Um, so the teachers gave them the time to actually exercise their executive function skills when they actually let the children do these, perform these acts independently. Um, then supporting children to self-regulate their behaviors. So. Instead of getting children to... Um, instead of directing children's behaviours, the teachers actually um, gave children the opportunities to make those um, decisions regarding their behaviours. And they did that through motivating children, and we, a lot of us do that. You know, give them um, choices, and then you give them, to let them know the consequences of their choices, and that guides their behaviour. Or you make them aware of the other's perspective. so things like... You know, if you all speak together, I can't really hear you, but if you put your hand up, um, I know you have something to say, and then you'll all get an opportunity to share your thoughts and be heard. So these are things that motivate children to actually guide, uh, motivate the children to actually control their own behaviours. Um, and Sue, on the other hand, instead of motivating children, will create opportunities where she could direct behaviours she'd convert it into a problem-solving opportunity. So she'd get, um, you know, for example, if the child's not, um, I don't know, things like um, participating or contributing to a routine, um, she'd ask the child to come and sit next to her, you know, really friendly interaction, come and sit next to me and let's look around for clues as to what you could be doing at this point. So non-confrontational, not actually directing anyone, but the child, the, the children themselves would then work out what they need to be doing and they would... Then, feel, you know, that sense of agency would be there—that they themselves have decided. Oh, actually, I need to be doing this, and they would engage their executive function skills by doing that. Um, now, the teachers were very, very particular about the language they used with children. So, a lot of language that inspired <coughs> children to, um, so sort of prompted children to use their executive function skills language that made them aware of their cognitive processes, so things like using the word concentrate, distract, or thinking, and at the same time being very purposeful about not using certain words, so not using the word guessing, because words like, you know, if you ask children to guess, it, it um, implies that you're not expecting them to actually use their, um, their, their thinking, not, uh, it's not a purposeful think, thoughtful act. So, for example, if, you know, you're giving children clues and you're asking them to work out what an object is, instead of saying, guess what it is, saying things like, you know, think about these clues and share your suggestions with us. So being a little bit purposeful uh, or deliberate about the language you use with children. Sue also used a lot of um, language that inspired or prompted visualization, so things like uh, put the picture in your head or bring the picture back of what we did last week at this time. So she believes this sort of language um, inspires children to exercise their working memory and their inhibitory control. Now this slide is, um, there are two strategies that the teachers used use both during teacher-led and child-led activities. So one was ensuring children engage successfully with challenging activities. So teachers, the teachers were quite convinced that the reason why children avoid, the initial response to, uh, is to avoid challenging activities is due to the fact that they don't have cognitive flexibility. So if a child actually experiences success when engaging with a, uh, with a challenging activity, this builds that flexibility in, in their thinking, oh yes, I've actually done this before, or when something was difficult before and I succeeded, and this makes them then want to approach those problem-solving tasks. So it builds that cognitive flexibility. Um, and that's the reason why they ensure that every child actually engaged with all challenging experiences. Didn't matter how challenging the child thought it was, they ensured, they provided the, they provided the appropriate amount of scaffolding to ensure the child actually succeeded in the task. So a lot was to do with addressing the stress levels, a lot of humour, because humour actually brings children to that um, appropriate or the optimal level of stress that ensures they can access their executive function skills. Um, Then, of course, using language that acknowledges um, challenges and, um, uh, you know talks about the relevance or the, uh, of practice and persisting, um, ensuring children uh, you know, uh, are aware of your perspective, of their, um, their abilities, because often a child won't approach something because they think they can't do it, so making them aware of others' perspectives. So that's, again, building that cognitive flexibility in children. And breaking down tasks into manageable chunks, I think we all know about that, so I don't need to talk about that. Now, capitalizing on spontaneous teaching moments, this happened during both teacher-led and child-led activities. A lot, a lot of relevant problem solving and, and then adhering to what the children came up with. So, um, for example, uh, you know, a child just walked in and she has a fractured arm. So how can we ensure this child is safe in the playground? Asking these children to list suggestions as to what we could do to ensure the child is safe. Or it's, it's really cold outside. Um, how can we ensure our clothes don't get when we're playing with, uh, you know, engaging in water play? Um, so getting children, you know, there are lots, every day we have a lot of these instances where we can ask children to solve these problems. And then um, in during child-led play, you know, asking children questions about their play, uh, offering them suggestions, joining in play. Now joining in play is a very powerful thing that uh, teachers can do because when you join in play, you are actually telling children that you value their play. And when you value their play, you're actually um, immediately ensuring the child is more deeply engaged in their play. So, um, so these were some of the things the teachers actually did. But as you look at these strategies, what you realize is that the teachers are actually, the essence of what the teachers are doing is offering children uh, opportunities to make decisions. Throughout all these strategies, they're offering children t- opportunities to make decisions and to problem solve. And this is telling us how um, deeply aligned their EF-enhancing practices are to their pedagogy and context that we listed earlier. Um, But, I mean, let's think about these teachers. They've been teaching for 30 years. These are award-winning teachers with multiple degrees. And, um, I mean, their centers are uh, all rated exceeding national standards. But it was only when the teachers began to intentionally teach to support executive function skills that they actually became aware of so many, many more opportunities to offer children, uh, opportunities for children to exercise um, uh, agency and to uh, problem solve. And I would actually argue that when you get children to problem solve, and you, you know, ensure that children succeed in problem solving, you're actually feeding into that sense of agency. Um, so basically, what the gist of my thesis is, is that when you're intentionally teaching to support the development of executive functioning skills, this actually provides educators a framework to support student agency. And we all know how integral, how vital student agency is to learning in, uh, in the early years. Um, So that's basically it. But before I end, uh, I did study the students' executive function skills as well, so at the beginning of the year and at the end of the study period. And what uh, I realized, or what we, uh, when, once we did all the calculations, we realized was the students with the lowest initial EF actually gained the most, demonstrated the highest EF gains at the end of the year. So what this actually... um, indicates is that children most at risk seem to have benefited the most from intentionally teaching to develop executive function skills and um, so what it actually implies is that when you intentionally teach to develop executive function skills you're actually ensuring that all children enter kindergarten on an equal footing so it actually is a bit of a um, sort of levels the playing field Um, And that's basically it. So thank you very much for listening.
0: Well, thank you. That was a very practical um, indication of how we can operate as educators. And I really do like the concept of the EEF lens. Uh, A very useful thought for us to take uh, away and the way in which that uh, sits beautifully with our curriculum documents as well. Thank you very much. That was beautiful. All right, so we've arrived at morning tea. Uh, If we can be very mindful of being COVID safe during the morning tea, that would be lovely. And if we could be back here at 11.15 after your morning tea. So please go and relax and enjoy that. Thank you.
4: All right, we'll get
5: started. (laughs) Hopefully you had a chance just to um, quickly jot down those things on that front page of that workbook that we will get to shortly. Um, Thank you. Making the effort on a Monday morning is always a bit of a challenge, but um, thank you for the effort to not only you be here, but also make arrangements back at your services so you can be here and everything's still running smoothly. Um, My name's Greg Campbell, I'm the Deputy National Education Leader at ESEQUA, and yeah, it's great to be out with people in real life. (laughs) It hasn't happened a lot over the last um, 14 months, so it is a nice opportunity um, to do that. Um, What we're going to talk today about in the short time that we've got together, and hopefully it's just a point to get you some ideas and things to take back and think about your services, have those discussions um, back at your service around what self-assessment means at your service and how that fits in with um, the quality improvement process. Um, But before we do, I'll um, also pay my acknowledgement at a sequel around Gadigal land, um, acknowledging um, that wonderful acknowledgement that Sean gave earlier, and also paying my respects that we, gain a lot from the land that we're on. Um, Probably the biggest thing is the privilege of being able to come and use it every day, whether we live or work, or live and work on the same land kind of thing. So it's always um, good to be able to pay that acknowledgement of what land that we are living and working on and what that means to us and how that influences our work and things like that. So when we're looking at um, self-assessment It's part of quality, and quality is not something that's ever finished. It's a continual journey, even with our excellent-rated services. One of the criteria they've got to do is how they're going to think about for the next three years, how they're going to build on that, how they're going to maintain excellence and move beyond that kind of thing. So it's not anything that the National Quality Framework sees as an end goal. Um, I'm sure all of us at some stage would love to go, when do we get to the end? But there's not an actual end. And that's one of the great things about the National Quality Framework, I think, is that there isn't that end. Um, improving quality is one of the guiding principles of the National Quality Framework. It's in the National Quality Framework. It's about positive outcomes for children. It's about commitment and intent. That stuff that gets you up in those mornings when, as a Sydney side it's always cold when I come to Canberra. <laughs> Even in, it. Yeah sometimes mid-year, like not necessarily winter as well. But it's that thing that gets you out of bed every day, your commitment and the intent that you are going in to do your work and make a difference to the lives of the children and the families that you're working with and the communities that you're working in. So they all form part of that continuous kind of improvement um, stuff. That embedded approach, that nothing's ever going to work in education and care if you're just doing it for the sake of doing it for a day or a week or whenever. It needs to be embedded um, in the approach and what's happening at the service. Um, That workplace and community culture, it's really important, no matter where we work in the education and care sector, um, is that, that culture within the workplace needs to be one that's focused on quality improvement. It's one that you work to improve the quality that you provide. It's the one that if you're in a leadership role, that you're thinking about the quality, the environment that you're providing, your educators and your teachers as well, and how you can work on that. That's why we all have performance plans and stuff like that. And I know that the department spends a lot of time thinking about their practice as well and what quality they deliver in the roles that they do and how they can improve that and reflect on that. So it's not something that's unique just to service delivery, but it's a full part of the National Quality Framework that we can be in a position where quality and quality improvement is really important. And that it is continuous and evolving and it changes. And as you evolve and change, you identify new areas that, again, kind of you think about 12 months ago, but now you're looking at it a completely different way and kind of going, oh, there's some areas that we need to focus on and target. When thinking about um, quality improvement, we kind of think of a couple of different components that all kind of form part of that quality improvement um, process. And that first one has to be service philosophy. And that should be forming the basis of everything that you're doing and everything that you believe. And what I wanted, why I wanted you to write down those strongly held beliefs at that front page is just have a quick glance now but when you get back to your service and go, here's off the top of my head, here's three or four strongly held beliefs that I at our service. How many of those are in your service philosophy? If they're strongly believed, believed, strongly held beliefs at your service, the thing that should be holding them strong is your philosophy. So have a look at that list. Even when you get back to your service and go, oh, off the top of my head, these are the first things which are usually. The things that you think of that you have the most tie to. How many of those are reflected in your service philosophy? How many of them are embedded in your service philosophy? Because I'm sure if they're strongly held beliefs, they're embedded in your practice. <coughs> but is that reflected in your um, philosophy? And that service philosophy is the base of quality improvement planning. Um, the second part of it is self-assessment. We've got we've got regulations that tell us. We have to have a philosophy, we have to self-assess against the regulations and the national quality standards, and that we have to identify areas for improvement through our quality improvement plan. So all of them form that part of quality improvement planning. And sometimes we just think that we get to the end and we've got this quick we've got this quality improvement plan and that's all that's involved in quality improvement planning. But for that to be most effective and work really well. It comes down to service philosophy and self-assessment, and they're a really strong basis for me. And we've got to have them. The regulation says we've got to have the philosophy. You've got to submit that when you submit, your quit. And then you've also got to have that self-assessment. Now the regulation doesn't say you have to submit that self-assessment, but the work that should go into it, it's a great piece of evidence that any any advisor coming out to do your self-assessment or talk about quality of your service or talk to you about how you critically reflect. Self-assessment is just another form of critical reflection. It's about, this is the basis about what we're doing and what it builds on and things like that. So um, probably my key piece of advice, and hopefully the authorised officers in the room don't mind me saying this, but the effort that goes into your self-assessment It should be something that you want to share with authorised officers when they're coming out. Because it actually unlocks a whole lot of your service and that thinking that you're doing about where you are and why kind of thing. So, if nothing else today, my advice would be to go back and have those discussions at your service, that if you don't already, think about how you can share your self-assessment with authorised officers when they're coming out to your service. Um, Another Great tool that you have on hand is, after every assessment rating that you have, you are handed a report that says, here's some ideas of where to focus your quality improvement planning. You could get a consultant to do that a couple of grand later and a few hours at your service, and you wouldn't get near the detail that you're gonna get out of those assessment rating reports. So really, have a look at them when they come in for what they are in that point in time assessment but also look about how that kind of feeds your next self-assessment your quality improvement planning. It's kind of there for you on a platter. Um, So don't discard that. That gives you a report on your point in time assessment, but it's also a great tool for um, kind of thinking about future self-assessment and quality improvement planning. I'm gonna slide through these, but I am gonna send a copy out to Kylie and she'll get a copy of the slides out to everybody as well, so don't feel like you've got it on worry too much about that. So when we think about um, that self-assessment, supporting that cycle, so it's about that, again, like I said, that service philosophy, that self-assessment, identifying areas for improvement, but also identifying strengths of the service. That's really important. Self-assessment is that, that opportunity to identify the great things that you do. And sometimes we tend to focus on that not so strength-based approach in self-assessment. You're only looking for things that you're not doing. But self-assessment is about looking for things you are doing as well. And for the majority of your day, they're the things that you've got to celebrate. We sometimes forget because we've oh, this happened or this happened and that's what we focus on at the end of the day and that's the thing that we think about on the drive home in the afternoon or on the bus and just like, oh crap, like, that just didn't go to plan. But the rest of your shift went great and some really great things and some great stuff happened, but we tend to focus on those little things. So self-assessment is that opportunity for you as a service to not only identify opportunities for improvement, but celebrate um, that stuff and move it into that um, quality improvement planning and that review and reflect cycle. It's a bit like your planning cycle. Quality improvement planning is part of that cycle that doesn't stop. Occasionally get to see services that kind of see self-assessment and quality improvement planning as a once a year we'll just do it and drive everybody bonkers and everybody hates we've got to do self-assessment we've got to do quality improvement planning but if it is that thing where it is embedded in your service in smaller chunks throughout the year just as part of how your service operates and embedded into who you are as a service and how you do your thinking and your reflection and stuff like that. It doesn't need to be that once a year, oh crap, we've got to submit our quality improvement plans at that time already. And we'll have a look at some of the benefits of kind of using that as an ongoing cycle and it's something that's happening um, constantly. So when we're thinking of um, self-assessment, as I said, the national law and regulations require it. Um, So does element 721 around assessing current practices, policies and procedures against the national quality standard, the national law and the national regulations. So sometimes when we think self-assessment, we're only thinking national quality standard. But there's an obligation under self-assessment to also assess under the national law and regulations as well. And that's really important to kind of know that that, those two components really need to be done as part of self-assessment. That the process needs to be collaborative. That one person, just, it's their task this year to go and do self-assessment. Um, some of the non supervisor, or ed leader, or some of course of course, like, if you put their hand up, picking up in a staff meeting, volunteer to do it kind of thing. That it's, their perspective isn't the whole, like, you need, and we'll talk a bit about perspective of um, that as well, about the value of having that perspective in self-assessment. As I said, identifies strengths, areas for improvement. Um, Informs quality improvement planning. That's why we do self-assessment to identify the opportunities to plan and think about what we're doing. Um, Honest, realistic and reflective. That can be really challenging. We've all sat in those team meetings where you know either you want to say something or somebody else wants to say something but they don't feel like they can. It's really important as part of thinking about self-assessment. In your service, is there a culture of openness that people can be honest and open that if they don't think something is working and that you are going through that self-assessment process, that they can stick their hand up and go, oh, 12 other people around this table have all said, yeah, no, not a problem here, and you kind of go, oh, I actually think we do have to think about this a bit differently we do have to reflect on it and think of it differently. Because from my perspective, I don't think we're actually meeting this area and have those discussions and think about it and stuff like that. And that's where it's really important, that it's not just the function of going through and ticking boxes and saying yes, no, why? But if you're in that process, are you actually in a space where you're confident that staff can be honest and open when doing self-assessment that if they truly believe that something's not happening, that they can say something. And that's not always easy to do. And it's unfortunate that it's not, but it's just the way it is. So part of really having great self-assessment is thinking, firstly, before we even get to self-assessment, have we created an environment where staff feel that they can be open, honest, and realistic in doing that self-assessment? And it's a process. It's a process that continues to go. And it's not one of those things, as I said, where you just pick it up and go, oh, we're going to do it this week. Somebody can get out the checklist, get out the checkboards, that kind of thing. Think about how it's an ongoing process that's just built in to your day, your week, your month, how you approach that kind of thing. Is it an item on your staff meeting where you just spend a few minutes, set aside some time each staff meeting to go through a different standard, a different regulation and stuff, and go, how are we going? How are we kind of measuring against this? It forms a great opportunity. Self-assessment is a great kind of leapfrog into critical reflection. And sitting there kind of deciding where you're meeting in that isn't necessarily critical reflection, but it can be a really great springboard to what you critically reflect on. And part of the value of self-assessment is perspective. And perspective is really important in critical reflection as well. So it's really kind of, um, it's about looking at that what happened and why and thinking about it. Um, Thinking about perspectives, unpacking them a bit, having those discussions, being robust in those discussions kind of thing. Um, How it's guiding decision-making and what's happening in that space the kind of having that lens of, we are doing this because for better outcomes for children. Yep, we've got a requirement under the law and regulations that we have to do it. But the reason that's part of the law and regulations is because that supports quality and that's what um, it's in there for. Again, having that um, open and trusting culture, time and space. So thinking about how do we build that time and space into an already busy day, week, month, year kind of thing, that where's that opportunity come for self-assessment? How do we fit that in as part of our ongoing um, cycle? And that self-reflection. I'm sure we could talk about the many personalities that sit around the staff meeting table and we've got the person that knows what everybody else does wrong, but not a clue of what they're doing wrong. (laughs) Um, We've got the person that probably thinks they're the only one that's doing stuff wrong, but doesn't want to say it. Bringing all different perspectives and skill sets and personalities to self-assessment can be really challenging. And for leaders in services, it's about balancing where people, knowing who they are, how they work, and how they can best contribute to self-assessment. Not everybody needs to contribute the same way because not everybody's got the same skill set and the same personality and how they work. So one of the really vital things with leaders and you're doing it all the time in the work that you do is around how um, that balances and what happens in there kind of thing. So I just thought um, one of the things that we've got is our self-assessment tool. Now we kind of design, develop this in response to seeing it as an area where services were struggling with self-assessment about how to approach it. Now, the self-assessment tool that we've got is, as clunky as it is, it's a Word document on our website. Because it's not a static document. It's designed that if you want to change it and delete stuff and add columns in and stick stuff in there, that you do it. Because there's no one way to do self-assessment. And this document is designed to let you adjust it to what works with you and how that works kind of thing. Um, So it goes through each of the quality areas and it's just going to give a brief summary and that kind of thing. So depending on who's helping you with self-assessment and we'll talk a little bit about that as well, that not everybody will know kind of what that base knowledge is. And it's good that if you've got different people looking at quality area one, it's important that everybody's on the same page about what quality area one is looking for. Because if they don't understand what the requirements of quality area one, and what the intent of quality area one is, and then they're assessing against it, you're gonna get conflicting results coming back, going, oh, I think it's this, I think it's that. Well, you probably think it's the same, but because you're looking at different things and you haven't got that common understanding, um, that it's, that's creating that kind of roadblock into how we kind of self-assess. So it's important that, when you're getting people to self-assess, particularly when they're doing the same things, that they're kind of on the same page about what they're looking for. Because that perspective is great to have, but they've all got to have that kind of thing. So the tool itself will just do a quick intro of the intent of the quality area and just break down the requirements. And then it will go through then and also look for the associated. Now this isn't every law and reg. Um, that's a requirement. But as much as possible, we've tried to map it to the law and the regs relating to that particular quality area. So it'll go through, give you the law and regs, um, how it relates, and then basically get you to go, are we compliant or are we not compliant? And that can be pretty, kind of take some honesty to kind of go, oh, all right, we're not. Or yes, we are. And if we go, yes, we are, Why do we think we are? And if we're asked that question, how do we kind of show that? Um, One of the really important things is, and I'm sure my um, colleagues from the regulatory authority um, would agree that if an area comes up as non-compliant, that becomes your priority. That needs immediate rectification. You need to address that. Um, It may be something where you think, we've just gotta give the department a quick call and have a bit of a chat about this. But that is not something you kind of go, oh yeah, we'll stick it in the quality improvement plan and we'll say 18 months, we'll get this rectified and that kind of thing. Um, if you're getting stuff when you're coming up against that regulation, that hard compliance stuff, um, yeah, if you're kind of sitting there and you're kind of going, yeah, all right, look, we've just discovered we're not compliant in this area, um, that needs immediate action and that becomes your priority um, in that space. And that's what that last column is there for, what action needs to be taken. Um, we then go into each of the elements and that kind of thing. So looking at, at that element level, um, met or not met, what's happening in that space. Sorry, so I don't run Thinking about are we meeting this element? Yes or no? And that's collective, having that discussion, sometimes that robust discussion. And if you're sitting around a room and half the room think you are and half think you're not, then having a discussion about why would some people think we are and some we're not? Is it because we have a different understanding? Is it maybe because of different age groups that it's happening in one room but not another? It's happening with some staff, not another, some others and that kind of thing. And that forms part of that kind of open, and that's why you need that open discussion and that opportunity um, to kind of think about that. So what works um, here is using that um, space to write down, why we come to that decision? And what I want you to do, um, just quickly on page two, I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes here. But reflecting on your most recent assessment rating experience, whenever that might have been, what were four or five practices that you felt could have been better showcased? So it it might not be in your current service, it might be another service. But what are four or five practices that you felt could have been better showcased at your last assessment rating? So I'll give you just a couple of minutes just to jot down. Then it doesn't have to be full detail and things like that. Um, It's not something you're gonna need to share, so don't worry about um, anything like that. But I'll just give give you a couple of minutes just to jot down three or four of those. those things where you thought after your last or anyway, like, oh, we can say more about this, or we can learn more about this, or we can kind of this So just jot down a couple of those ideas. So just thinking of those couple of things that you've put in um, that list. All of those things are great things to include in your self-assessment. And that's evidence that helps you decide where you're sitting against the national quality standard in particular. And that takes me back to my earlier point around sharing that with your authorised officer and gives them that opportunity as well to go, ah, all right. Nobody actually mentioned this. Or I didn't see any evidence on the data. It never like, come up, but oh, yeah, it's in the self-assessment kind of thing. And I can see how that ties in with quality improvement planning. So while we see typically see self-assessment as something else we've got to do, think of a self-assessment as this is the opportunity for us to showcase all the things that we think are happening at our service to meet the National Quality Standards. It doesn't have to be in-depth. It doesn't have to be too much, but using this kind of template to just note down all those things that tell you why you think you're meeting it. And it's no good kind of using rose color classes and thinking just because you said it's meeting the national standard that an authorised officer isn't gonna come in and find other things that maybe demonstrate that it's not meeting or it's not at the level that you thought it was. But having that evidence in there in your self-assessment helps guide you in where, why you're making those decisions in your self-assessment but sharing that more broadly um, with your authorised officer helps to add another perspective to your assessment and reading visit as well. And again, like I said, it's not a requirement that you do, but think about it as a way, not only just to help the authorised officer get a better understanding of what's happening at your service, but the opportunity for you to showcase all those things that you think are happening at your service and doing wonderful things with. Like self-assessment's a really good opportunity to showcase that in a way that sometimes you don't always get. And let's face it, sometimes staff get anxious during those kind of visits and um, yeah, you'll talk to staff afterwards and they'll go, oh, I wish I'd said this, or I forgot to say this and that kind of stuff. But if it's in your self-assessment you've shared it with the authorised officer already, then some of those missed opportunities are no longer missed. They're still there, and the authorised officer, if they want to ask, them, they might ask you about those particular things. And authorised officers take a lot of time to get ready to come out and do an assessment for any visit or service and look at the stuff that you've submitted. So your quality improvement plan, and if that's been informed by your self-assessment and you've provided your self-assessment as well, that just paints more of that picture kind of thing. Um, Self-assessment is also a great opportunity to highlight, as I said, where you're meeting and also exceeding. And the tool itself, um, we adjusted it so that, particularly those evidence where you think you are exceeding the National Quality Standards, you can identify there in the boxes about, this is why we think we're meeting, these are why we think we're exceeding. Doesn't necessarily mean that for that, you are going to be exceeding, that's going to be your rating because that takes in lots of other stuff as well. But at least that gives you the point to have that discussion with the authorised officer around, this is why we think we're at this level. This is where our thinking is. And as much as I wish it was the case, um, and I'm sure maybe one day down the track we'll get there, there's not too many services that don't go into assessment maybe thinking they're they're going to be exceeding in all certain quality areas. Um, but that's the way that the system works. Is that's not the case, and that kind of that exceeding rating is above and beyond. And it's like it's clearer um, what gets you there, and that kind of stuff, and the resources and things to support that are constantly evolving, and um, they're out there, kind of thing. But just being able to think about um, at our service when we're doing self-assessment and looking at those exceeding. Um, about, So when we think about um, practice being embedded, um, informed by critical reflection and shaped by meaningful engagement, when we're thinking about exceeding, coming back to that thing about having honest and open forum with your staff to actually look at it, it's better to go into assessment rating, being honest about, you know what, maybe we're not at exceeding, but that's not where we wanna be right now, and that's gonna inform our future planning. but some of that stuff is coming around through that self-assessment. Because if you're just going to do a self-assessment in a day or two, you're never going to have those ongoing discussions and that kind of long-term process ingrained thing in your service. But having that as an ongoing process, one, it helps you to have a really realistic um, view of your service and a realistic expectation of what the outcome of assessment rating might be but also it helps to eliminate if staff are constantly thinking about where our service is and where it's working against the, nas- for, um, against the National Quality Standard. It builds their knowledge in how the service is demonstrating the National Quality Standard. Through that knowledge comes confidence, and then you don't get those staff that are overly anxious at assessment rating because this is stuff they've been talking about. They know what evidence is against element 121 Because we've had that discussion three times over the last four months. So if an authorised officer asks me about that, I don't need to like go, oh I'm gonna like I don't know or I've done to say the wrong thing. Because you've had those discussions and built that confidence amongst all your staff in that kind of space. But the biggest thing and the the way the tool's design is around thinking about practice. Exceeding is all about practice. Um, perspectives is another really important part of self-assessment, that it's not just one person's perspective for Um, self-assessment. Need to think about gathering input from all relevant um, service stakeholders. Um, Strong relationships, create that firm foundation, so thinking about those perspectives. Um, Be genuine and seek meaningful input. We can all ask everybody to give input, but if you're not going to listen to it, you're not going to pay any heed to it, that's not being genuine or authentic. Um, focus on the why. Often when we're seeking people's views on giving their perspective, we don't actually tell them why we want their perspective and what value their perspective adds. We often tell them what we want them to do, but we don't tell them why they're in that and what their contribution um, will do. And be creative around how you gather that perspective. We're going to um, jump into the Mentimeter now. So, if you've downloaded the app, um, I'll get you to open it. If not, you can just go to the website, menti.com. So, if you type in that number up on the screen, which is 8431 3627. And I want you to just add in. So it's 8431 3627 is the code. And then I want you just to add in whose perspective would give another dimension to self-assessment at your service? But you can just jot down a couple of ideas in there. So you can add up to five responses. And then hit done or enter. you machine. So whose perspective will give another dimension to self-assessment at your service? So as you can see, as people start to put their responses in, and what it's doing is. In- The bigger the word, the more people are putting that same response in kind of thing. So we can already see with the responses that are coming through, nearly 40 people already, and families, children, educators, communities, they're all valuable perspectives to think about um, self-assessment. And it doesn't mean you're going to have your families coming with the checklist and ticking off and doing that kind of stuff. It also doesn't mean that you can't think about how you kind of get them involved in assessing, helping to assess the service and that's where some of that stuff around what the intent of each of the quality areas can be useful. for. It's no good asking parents to kind of contribute to that self-assessment if they're not actually sure what it is that you're looking for, kind of thing. So some of that explanation around the intent um, can be really good, so thank you for that. And I'll stick this in the slides as well, Kylie, so when it comes through you can um, share that as well. But just lots of those things are about being creative with that self-assessment and whose perspective? Thinking about some of those things. How do you get your community perspective in your self-assessment? How do you get an Aboriginal perspective into your assessment? How do you get a support needs worker, their perspective into it? Because the more perspective you bring to it, the more genuine it is, and the more of a clearer picture it is as well. And we all know what it's like. We love people coming to the book of what we do and getting feedback on it. This is just another opportunity um, for that to happen. Um, what I've done just on that third page in your workbook is not for now, but Maybe this is a good document to go back and use at your service in a discussion around whose perspective we could use in self-assessment, but think about how and think about where their perspective is most valued. And again, taking that opportunity to explain to people why you want them involved in it. Not just asking them for their engagement, because you often know what a struggle that can be, but to tell them why and what value there is in that can really help change their perspective on it and give them opportunities. So yeah, that is just a discussion document to think about. How do you involve children in self-assessment? I'm sure there's 10 compliance things that you could give a group of after-school care kids, a clipboard and a list and a tick box, and you'd soon have a very good understanding of whether you're compliant or not based on the views of a couple of 10-year-olds. but, yeah, how do you involve children in self assessment, in quality, and things like that? Um, just a couple of quick tips, and again, these will be in the slides, so um, just in fact, appoint a leader for self assessment. It doesn't necessarily need to be the provider, or the nominated supervisor, or the ed leader, or the room leader. Just have somebody who can help coordinate the process, who can be that champion for self assessment, and to think about it. Um, be practical. I don't think we're going to get this all done in two days. What we're going to do is we're going to break this up into chunks. And even if you think we're just going to do one standard a month, you're not going to get it done in a year, but over a cycle, because by the time you got to the end, you're ready to start again and think about it and that kind of thing. So it becomes a process, it becomes a cycle. Um, keep that process alive. Have it continually going. kind of thing. Um, engage your community. Think about um, who, who are the perspectives that add value to your self-assessment. Um, use the guide, um, not only to the National quality Framework, uh, but also the approved learning frameworks. So much time and effort has gone into those guides and the documents themselves, that they're a great starting point to make sure that everybody is on the same page when you are thinking about particular things and looking at self-assessment. Like, if you look at a compliance thing and you go, I've got no idea whether we're meeting that or not. Go to the guide and have a look. What does the guide say about Regulation 761? It's in there in the guide to the National Ecology Framework. It's a great place to start if people don't know. And if it's not, we're all right, we need to do some further investigation. We need to ask a few questions. We need to do a bit more research. And particularly when you're thinking about reflecting on um, even the learning frameworks, the educators' Guide. Just packed full of reflection on how to reflect on the guides and things like that. So um, think about that. Um, think about the evidence. Think about the evidence you're basing your decision on. And if you've got your self-assessment and you've listed stuff in there, and you think, oh, yeah, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. We do this. We do this. You're going to have to put your money where your mouth is if an authorised officer comes out and goes, can you just show me that? Right. Oh, um, I can, but if you can just come back tomorrow, I'll get it to you. <laughs> that really, and that's part of that being honest about what evidence you can provide. And that's why it's good to know what evidence you can provide against each of the standards and things like that. Um, being honest and open is really important. As I said, having that environment where people can be open about self-assessment. And celebrating those strengths and achievements. If we actually spent time looking at our days, we have a lot more achievements than we don't, but we just don't celebrate them enough. And it's okay to celebrate them daily. Sometimes we do need to get to the end of the day and just celebrate that that day's finished and we got through and we did this and we did that. And that we made a difference to those children that we now here today. And we made a difference to that community that we're in here today. Just some of the resources, because it is, I'd like to get through really quickly, I appreciate it. But there are lots of resources we've tried to kind of um, focus on our website and stuff like that. So the self-assessment tool, as I said, it's a Word document. It's a clunky Word document. Our comms team hated us trying to leave it as a Word document because it's not good practice. But for your purposes, being able to cut and paste and chop it around, do what you want, you want to and add stuff to it and that kind of thing, it's perfect for that. And if you want to whip out just Couple of elements or a couple of parts of the law and just use them to focus on as your first thing, then you can do that as well. Um, the resources we've got around, as i said, the guide to the National Quality Framework. If you're looking around self-assessment, if you're the ED leader and how your role kind of comes in. Um, just a quick plug as well for our um, additional addendums we've added to the ED leader resource for outside schoolhouse care and family daycare. Um, or just build, to kind of build that knowledge and confidence of um, quality. Um, there's lots of info sheets that we've got on our website, whether it's about philosophy or quality improvement or that kind of thing. Just somewhere good to start. Um, our quest for quality. Again, some of these are about building that common knowledge base, about thinking about what they look like in that space. Um, we've got some stuff on um, Kahoot. And again, it's just a different kind of medium to use. And it's great for things like staff meetings and stuff, just to test where people are. Is everybody on the same page? Does everybody have the same understanding of approved learning frameworks? Because if we're gonna go and think about self-assessment on how we use the approved learning frameworks, if not everybody's got the same kind of starting base, we're not gonna kind of get that little authenticity to it. Um, As well as things like our We Hear You blog and um, our newsletter and stuff like that are all, There, but just finishing up, and I like this one, whenever I talk about self-assessment, I really like this one around, don't be afraid of improving slowly, Um, be afraid of standing still. And self-assessment is a really important thing that it doesn't need to be done fast. And that quality improvement planning is a really important thing in everything that we do, whether that be the formalisation of it in a quality improvement plan. But just day to day, we're always looking for opportunities to do better tomorrow and to think about it. And self-assessment and quality improvement planning are all part of that um, basis. But really, as I said, go back to that service philosophy. What does your service philosophy say about quality improvement planning? What does it say about those things that you wrote down about those strongly held beliefs? Um, Yeah, thank you. It's
0: Next to that is the um, self-assessment uh, for compliance tool that uh, often comes out through our audit and risk team, and that can help you as well on that compliance with the national law and regulations, which is the underlying base, of course, to uh, um, the, this meeting standard and engaging continuous improvement. So, thank you, Perry, and. Please take note of all of the resources that are available through CIFA. Um, they, they're so rich, there's, there's so much there. And I, I know sometimes it's like it's you nearly know, over overpowering because there's so much there. But you know, if you go to it with the lens of what we want in, you can generally find what you're controlling there. Now I'd like to call on uh, Rowena, who is from Mocha, technological leader, and the supervisor of that service, and she's going to add more
4: to our theme of continuous improvement. Thanks. Thanks, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to Sika as well for giving us this opportunity to share. Um, some of the work that we do at Motha. I know there are many people here who have incredible practice, so I feel very uh, humbled and perhaps have a little bit of imposter syndrome standing up here. Um, But hopefully there may be something in my presentation that speaks to you. I'd like to start by sharing Motha's acknowledgement of country. Uh, This acknowledgement um, was developed uh, by our children and educators many, many years ago. Um, and with the support of Duncan Smith as well. So we respectfully acknowledge the Ngunnawal people as the traditional custodians of this land. Together we will look after the people, the animals and the plants and keep this land beautiful. I feel privileged to be able to share that with you as an example of Mokka's ongoing commitment to reconciliation and I'd like to acknowledge that Robbie McGalvi and many educators and teachers who came before me at Moha have had an incredibly strong commitment to reconciliation for many, many years, and I will continue to uphold their legacy. So today I'm going to um, my sorry my presentation is going to focus on three areas. The first will touch on our project with the Australian Teacher and School Leadership Organisation. The second will look at how we use employee growth processes um, and self-assessment as part of professional learning. And then how this relates to quality improvement and assessment of impact. I know it's a little bit hard to see this slide but I'll explain it as we go. In April, we were contacted by the Australian Teacher and School Leadership Organisation to find out about our approach to professional learning. After this conversation, we were then invited to participate in a video case study to demonstrate examples of practice in the four areas of high quality professional learning. The first stage is identifying professional learning needs. The second is by selecting and undertaking learning. The third is applying and refining learning. And the fourth is to evaluate the overall impact. The template on this slide can be accessed from the AXL website. This is a really helpful website and has many freely available tools to help leaders and early childhood teachers and educators Unless you try to do something beyond what you've already mastered, you will never grow. I chose this quote as it is a great example and an important reminder of employee growth and self-reflection, not only for teachers and educators, but for leaders as well. So we were using a traditional appraisal system at HOKA that fulfilled our requirements, but I couldn't help but think perhaps there was another way that we could be more meaningful for both the employee and the leaders. So I set about undertaking some professional learning for myself. Some of this learning came from the early childhood sector and others from the wider field of leadership. From this we moved away from traditional appraisals of performance and began to focus more on employee growth. I still regularly have conversations with staff in relation to performance. This happens on a daily basis in many different ways and we of course still have a process available for if we need to manage underperformers. However, this focus on employee growth was something different to us. One important aspect of this process is to consider the different learning styles of each and every educator and teacher. We often do this for children and so it is important to remember that adult learners are individuals too. From the initial self-reflections and previous appraisals, I began to analyse and examine the different learning styles throughout the centre, as well as the different goals for professional learning. One goal that was repeated throughout this process was to focus on the arts, and what this meant for infant, toddler, and preschool age pedagogy and practice. So in partnership with each individual, I developed a learning plan based on their preferred learning styles. And in relation to the whole centre focus, we used our quality improvement plan to begin to document an action research project in relation to the topic of visual arts. So I'm going to take a step back for a minute and explain what step one looks like at Mockup in relation to the employee growth plan. The first part of the employee growth, growth plan requires employees to complete self reflection. In particular, it asks the individuals to consider the following questions What accomplishments are you most proud of in your work? What struggles have you experienced in your work and how did you overcome them? <coughs> what invigorates you in your work at What part of our philosophy interests you the most and why? and then we would also ask them to tell us about what their experience was for themselves of working at MoCA. These questions not only helped inform the employee growth plans, but they also helped with our centre self-assessment because it told me where we could continue to improve in relation to employee job satisfaction and our philosophy. The second section looks at supporting wellbeing. It explains that the role of an educator is both a physically and emotionally strenuous job, which requires mental agility and a growth mindset. And in this area, we look at what the employee needs from MOCA in order to be successful in this area of our practice. Then there is a, then there is a need, sorry, then there is a reflection from the director, um, and following that, we make some smart goals together and develop a professional learning plan. We then have a three-month check-in and a six-month review before repeating the process annually. Stage two is about selecting and undertaking learning. We do this by trying to find the best fit. The best fit for each individual and for the organisation as a whole. In addition to learning styles, we consider these questions. What is the evidence base for the professional learning? What do I know about the provider and are they reputable? It's important to remember that professional learning can take many forms. There are many types of professional learning besides conventional conferences and external courses that may be more effective depending on your learning needs. It is often most beneficial to engage in professional learning that is collaborative and job embedded. For example, you may wish to undertake action research, trial and observe new practices with colleagues, engage in a professional learning community, or analyse videos of practice. At MOCA, we adopt a multimodal approach when choosing professional learning activities. For example, we spend more time on professional learning embedded into our daily practice. A proportion of our time undertaking self-directed learning and a small percentage of our time for attending conferences, workshops and formal qualifications, although all of these are very re- relevant. At MOCA, step two looks at individual learning plans as well as the centre-wide approach to learning through our Quality Improvement Plan. Both approaches include a focus on lead educator meetings, staff, staff meetings, room meetings, coaching and mentoring, professional reading and discussion groups, to name a few. The centre-wide approach, which is performed <coughs> from the analysis of individual learning plans, often includes a practitioner inquiry project. This year, our current project is focused on studying visual arts as well as using the above meeting and discussion times <coughs> as an opportunity for myself as the leader to support professional learning, I also engage external facilitators with a particular expertise in the areas that we need. For example, we currently have an external facilitator to focus on visual arts and the notion of becoming with art. The second phase of our project looks at art from a First Nations perspective. And the third phase, we'll look at art in relation to STEM. Improving practice improves quality outcomes. And the application of this learning is a core component in an ongoing high-quality professional learning cycle. In this stage, we actively apply our understanding. We make revisions to practice and trial and implement new ideas and approaches. This may take place in a learning environment with the learners, or it may have a stronger stronger impact on our interactions with our colleagues. It is important not to feel that you have to apply your professional learning exactly as it was presented. You may find your learning more effective if you tweak it to suit your particular circumstances and learning environment. Collaborating with colleagues also supports accountability and sustained behavioural change. We document straight, um, stage three in different ways, including by updating our QIP progress notes and maintaining research journals. <coughs> Just like educators and teachers learn in different ways, so too do they work in different ways. So when we consider how we document step three, it will look different to the different individuals and, te- and teams completing it. Some individuals will document stage three through photo essays, through keywords and jottings. Some will write more formal reports and others will provide visual displays. The one thing that each of these processes has in common is that they all contribute to articulating the learning journey of our educators and the impact that this may have on children's learning development and wellbeing. As a leader, I use this time to observe and reflect on what support my colleagues may need um, for me in, in, to help with implementing this learning. I also document this through our QIP progress notes. Right Evaluating the overall impact. Currently the approaches that we use at MOCA are reviewing our QIP smart goals, reviewing professional learning in terms of our RAP actions and deliverables, and our strategic inclusion plan. We also have employee growth plan follow-up conversations to help evaluate this impact. We also consider questions such as has the professional learning become embedded throughout the room or the centre? Has there been an improvement to centre culture? Have there been philosophical influences? Evaluating the impact of professional learning may not always be easy, as it will take time to impact your teaching practice and learner outcomes. In addition to the approaches mentioned on the previous slide, This is an area of the cycle where we are continuing to further develop mock-up. We are looking for ways to collect quantitative and qualitative data to help identify trends in changes to our practice or learner outcomes. So this then creates a new opportunity for professional learning. For me as an individual and for our QRP, and our high-quality professional learning cycle. So I've included some links below to some resources that I have found very helpful throughout this process and other areas of my work. Um, the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership website, as I mentioned before, has a range of freely available resources. And as um, that previous presentation explained, search so the AISTL website. I want to thank, say thanks again to Sita for the opportunity to share a little of what we do and. I, um, I hope that, that you've something something uh, helpful in our presentation today. Thank you. Thank you, Rowena. That's very good.
0: well done. I know you're very
5: nervous and so It's just not necessary.
4: Can I just ask if um, those slides could be shared with us? Is that yes. possible? Because that yes. Yes. very informative that
0: yes. so I can have enough I could write. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, thanks Tiffany, they will all shared. So um, that's brought us to the end of our agenda today, so I would now like to officially thank Kylie and Tamara who put the meeting together for us, and I do know how much work goes into that, so if we put our hands together for Kylie. Thank you to all of our guest speakers for sharing their expertise and knowledge. It's always a great thing to come together as a sector and to hear what others are engaging in and involved in and it's always helpful for us to go away and think and reflect on that. All PowerPoint slides and the podcast recording this meeting will be shared for providers and services. And before you leave, can we also encourage you to put yourselves up to date using the Children's and Educational Care Assurances different ways of doing that. Um, so you can sign up and request in writing to receive emails and alerts from us including the talking quality publications and information about professional development opportunities. You can follow us on Facebook uh, pages and look at the way through your IT into that meeting today. Honest to God, I can't keep up with this world. It's just, you know, makes my head spin sometimes. But yes, so we've got Facebook for you um, and the, the Education Directorate's website also includes helpful information for providers and service leaders and educators. And um, also some free professional learning opportunities. Um, You'll see those in your information packs that are on your tables. If you you could take those with you. Um, Libraries ACTs, in partnership with the Education Directorate, will be facilitating some events on the 24th of June in this hall. So make sure you check that out as well. So thank you again, everyone, for being with us. As I said at the start, you know your time is precious. So I hope that it's been a valuable meeting for you and you've enjoyed some quality networking. Take care, and I hope that the fog has risen out there and the sun is shining. Have a lovely day. Thank you.